Please remain standing and pray with me. Almighty God, come now and by the power of your Holy Spirit, anoint the preaching and teaching of your word, Lord, so that it is fully under the unction of your guidance and your direction this morning. I pray for all of us that our hearts would be made tender and soft and our ears open to receive instruction, Lord. Come, Holy Spirit, and speak a word to your people today. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, for uh, those of you who are guests with us this morning, I want you to know that this is the uh, final sermon in a series we're doing on one of our core values at Christ Church. One of our core values is that we are a community of radical generosity. We've been talking about giving. Uh, this is the last in that series, and people, you do not get to say yay or amen or anything like that. No, because seriously, at Christ Church, the way we understand this and the way we talk about this is that giving, radical generosity, has more to do, is as a spiritual discipline, with prayer and fasting than it does with buildings and budgets. Giving has more to do with prayer and fasting than it does with buildings and budgets. And the reason why we often confuse that is twofold. First of all, we've often heard it uh, presented as a message of the needs of, you know, the financial or, or fiscal needs of a church. And so we often hear teaching on giving based in need as opposed to in the generosity of God and in the character of God. And the second reason we often react to it that way is that we just, we feel it. I mean, we, we, we get poked a little bit when we have this teaching brought to our ears. And so, uh, and so we need the Holy Spirit to open our hearts and open our minds. And last Sunday, I told you that one of the ways we were going to talk about this is we were going to talk about the Logos, the Logos. And so, just to give you a little background, many Greek philosophers, beginning with Heraclitus, back, uh, back home they just called him Cletus, but his uh, Heraclitus, or Heraclitus, to avoid sounding just like I just did, but beginning with Heraclitus around the year 500 BC, and then later the Stoics were convinced that there was a governing principle, a governing principle behind the universe. And they called this governing principle the logos, which is the Greek word for word, the word. So Heraclitus identified the logos like this, as the universal principle. The logos is the universal principle which animates and rules the world. So they saw the logos as giving order to creation. The logos sustained and knit the cosmos together. The logos meant that the universe, therefore, had purpose and it was backed with reason. Now, these philosophers believed that the, the key to the good life was a, a, to the life of value and the life of worth and the life of virtue, the life of virtue, was to bring one's life into harmony with the Logos, the ordering purpose that sustained creation. And they taught that when you do that, then life is harmonious and blessed. They were pretty smart guys those early Greek philosophers. Well, the very first Christians knew all about that Logos idea, and they said, hey, guys, hey, you Greek philosopher people. They said, we have, uh, we have got the down low on the Logos. The Logos is not a principle or a force. No, the Logos is a person. The Logos is a person. So we read in the first chapter of the Gospel of St. John, we read this. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. In the beginning was the Logos. 
And the Logos was with God, and the Logos was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then St. Paul takes up that same idea, and he intentionally uses the same language of the Stoics when they spoke about the Logos, when he says this about, listen, Paul says this about Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. Paul says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Here it is. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And this is the, the, the real thing that ties it together with that idea of Logos. And he is before all things, listen, and in him all things hold together. In him all things hold together. So the earliest Christian writers are saying to their pre-Christian world this. They said, you know that Logos thing that you guys think is so great and that you think we should line up our lives with? Well, he's Jesus. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And if you want to find abundant life, life that is truly life, a life that is flourishing, then you need to align your life with this governing principle of the universe who is actually the Savior who died on the cross and rose again for you. That's what they said about the Logos. And in the gospel lesson we heard today from Matthew chapter 6, we are given the way for those of us who follow Jesus to line up our lives with how Jesus, the Logos, orders the universe. Jesus says to us, he says, you know how you're anxious all the time? You know how you're worried uh, about just making ends meet? He says, here's the secret. Listen, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So the key is this, put God first in every area of your life. And the reverse is also true. Please listen. If we do not seek God first, Christian brother or sister, then we will walk out of step with the very order of creation. And when we do that, the result of walking out of step with the very order of the cosmos is frustration, anxiety, and scarcity. And that's what was happening in that passage from Haggai we heard read this morning. One author gives us the context for this passage. He writes, in 586 B.C., the Babylonians sacked Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and took most of the Jews into exile. About 50 years later, Cyrus, the Persian, took Babylon and brought the Babylonian Empire to an end. The next year, in 538 B.C., he allowed the Jews to return to their homeland and rebuild the temple at Jerusalem. This work to rebuild the temple was begun, according to Haggai chapter 1, verse 15, on the 24th day of the sixth month of the second year of the reign of Darius which in our dating is September 21st, 520. So you can see that about 18 years, this is the point, about 18 years 
went by between the return of the exiles and the rebuilding of the temple. So what had happened? Well, God had fulfilled the prophecy of Jeremiah, and the people had returned to the land. They were back in Jerusalem, and instead of giving God glory by turning their resources to glorifying God and rebuilding the temple, they took pains to supply their own comfort and security first. Instead of putting God first, making God the priority, they took pains to put their own comfort and security first. And thus writes Haggai, thus says the Lord of hosts, These people say that the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses? Must have been in the 1970s. (laughs) In your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? So here's the deal. The people of God were not putting God first but were putting their own needs and plans and desires first. They were putting their own priorities. They were putting their own comfort first. In in essence, they were saying, as soon as we finish our home improvement project, as soon as I can get that new car, as soon as I can pay my student loans, as soon as I can get braces for the kids, as soon as we can get our children through college, then... Then we will think about rebuilding the temple. Then we will turn our resources towards God. But the result of that kind of disordered living was constant frustration and scarcity. They were thinking, I will do what I need to do to get the stuff I need done first, to get my life in order first, and as soon as I do my stuff, then I will start to make God a priority. But it was like trying to fill a bucket that has a hole in the bottom of it. So listen to God's response to that attitude. Back to Haggai chapter 1 verse 5. Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. He who earns wages does so to put them in a bag with holes. Does that sound familiar? Does that sound like something you might have experienced? Why were things not working out? Well, because in their list of priorities, listen, in their list of priorities, even though with lips they would have said, oh, God is first. But in how they ordered their lives, God was always last on the list. And because they were not seeking first the kingdom of God, here is the result. Verse 9, you looked for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house. Therefore, the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. So we've had Heraclitus. Now we're going to have a little John Piper. John Piper writes about this passage. So they lived in perpetual frustration and discontentment. Nothing satisfied. We can't pass over this lesson easily. It is for us too. If you devote yourself to sowing and eating and drinking and clothing yourselves and earning wages, 
but neglect your ministry in the body of Christ, which is the temple of God, you will live in constant frustration. If you spend your time and energy seeking comfort and security from the world and do not spend yourself for the glory of God, every pleasure will leave its sour aftertaste of depression and guilt and frustration. So what is God's remedy for this situation? What would change their scarcity and frustration into abundance and fulfillment? Verse 7, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build my house then that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. So take the material blessings that God has given you and put God first in how you use them. And for us, this means put God first in your finances. Glorify God in your financial life. It is not hermetically sealed off from your discipleship, no matter what the world, the flesh, and the devil would have you think. Our pocketbook is not a sacred space reserved to another God than Jesus Christ. Put God first in your finances. Glorify God in your financial life. We need to ask ourselves, is Jesus Christ Lord over every scintilla of my existence, including how I order my financial life? Here's the connection. Listen, here's the connection between the Logos. When we are givers, we're reflecting the Logos, the God who gives himself. And thus, many times when we are walking in concert and in harmony with God's way of ordering his universe, things begin to fall in place. So Jesus, right, Jesus tells this, this may have been memory verses for you growing up, it certainly was for me as a teenager, Matthew 6, verses 31 through 33, therefore do not be anxious, Jesus said, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear, for the Gentiles, the, that's how the Gentiles, that's how the non-believers ordered their lives, that's how non-believers live by worrying about what we're going to eat, what we're going to drink, and what we're going to wear. For the Gentiles, Jesus says, seek after all these things, but your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do we believe that? Do we really believe that? Are we reflecting that in our life? I mean... Is this the part of our life that, where we just say, okay, all the other promises, all the other promises of God, I can go along with those, but not that one, not that one. That's a bridge too far. And all these things will be added unto you. Lord Jesus, we hold you to your good word. Help us to seek you first. So what does putting the kingdom of God first look like as it relates to our financial existence? It means becoming a radically generous giver. Throughout Scripture, the Bible refers to the tithe. And, you know, and I've, I've kind of alluded to this before, but you just say the word tithe, and, and, and everyone seems to tense up. I mean, you, like everybody needs a neck, a neck rub right after you say that word. But it's a biblical word. So throughout the Scripture, the Bible refers to the tithe as the basic unit of giving to God. It's in the Old Testament. It's in the New Testament. What is a tithe? A tithe is a 10% of our income. Not 1.8%, not 5%, but 10%. Someone might have said, well, I tried that tithing thing and it just didn't work. 
Well, what was your tithe? Oh, I dropped a 20 into the offering plate every Sunday. Well, no, you haven't tithed. You haven't given a tithe. You see, tithing isn't, tithing isn't advanced Christianity. It is basic Christian discipleship. It is basic spiritual discipline. Tithing is not advanced Christianity. It is a, it is a basic Christian spiritual discipline. It has more to do with prayer and fasting than it does with buildings and budgets. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be a generous giver by definition. And because it is the character of God to be lavishly generous, since that is the logos of the universe, when we do that, the natural result is we experience God's abundance in our life. We hear it in Malachi, very famous verse, Malachi 3.10. Bring the full tithe into the store, storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. No more need. Abundance is the result of generosity. So God promises to do that in the Old Testament, and Jesus reiterates it in the New Testament. Seek God first, and he will supply your needs. As it says in Proverbs 3, 9, and 10, again, do we really believe God's word? Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty, and your vats will be bursting with wine. And I want you to know that I have personally witnessed this in my own life. Lisa and I have practiced these things now for years since we, since we were very young and very, very genuinely poor. And I've seen it in the lives of others who have accepted this challenge to reflect the Logos, to become generous givers, to be tithers here at Christ Church. A dear sister who goes to this church had been divorced for about 11 years her husband's alcohol and drug addiction and his unfaithfulness to the marriage had caused her to become a single mom with two young daughters, and as you can imagine, those years were tough. Well, during the foundations course, which is a, a, it's a catechesis progress, a process that we have here at Christ Church, during the foundations course, we did a biblical study on tithing that culminated in what we called the 90-day tithe challenge, and if you've been through foundations, you know about this that we, we take the challenge, we don't have to, but we challenge ourselves, I'm gonna give the full tithe for 90 days, and if God does not meet my needs within those 90 days as I live into his word, then I just stop tithing. Well, she took that tithe challenge, and even though she was in a much better place financially, all those years of not knowing if there would be enough for her and for her daughters made that a very frightening decision. And moreover, she was in the middle of planning for the wedding of one of her daughters, and all of the expense of the wedding was looming over her, over her head. And the tempter said to her, well, this, just, this is just a horrible time to start tithing. Do not do it. But she did it anyway. And here's the cool thing. Three weeks after beginning to tithe, she met me upstairs in the hallway and joyfully said, you know that tithing thing? It works. God is faithful. I just got a call from my ex-husband who has given, given nothing to us in the last 11 years, and he said he wanted to start helping out. He wanted to help pay for the wedding, and he did. 
That's the kind of unexpected miracle that begins to happen when we tithe. Tithing is one of the few places where we can experience the supernatural on an almost daily basis. And that's why generosity is directly linked to joy. We rejoice to see God at work. Our generosity opens God's abundance. Why? Because our generosity is a demonstration of trust in God. It is, it is how we demonstrate that we are putting God first, seeking first the kingdom of God. We are saying that we believe what we believe to be true about God and his good creation when we give. We say that he is a good and faithful God and that he loves us when we give. We say that we can trust him with our lives and our livelihoods when we give. And we say that we believe that he is the source of our abundance and not we ourselves. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. And that's why at Christ Church we believe in and we teach this teaching about tithing. And as I have said, there's never a good time to do this, to begin it if you're not doing it now. There are always house payments and car payments and doctor's bills and college to plan for and retirement plans which are going away. Some of us are saying, well, we can't make our budget right now. Well, maybe that's your problem. You need to bring God into your plan. Remember that God can do more with your 90% than you can with your 100%. And so, brothers and sisters, in the power of the Holy Spirit, may we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness so that all of these things be added unto us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.